Hey everyone, I know you've heard me speak about microdosing and how much I love it. And I'm talking about microdosing THC. I love it. And that's why I love our sponsor, microdose.com. Microdose gummies are incredible. They deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And when I mean just the right amount of good, I mean in so many situations, anxiety, sleep, focus, pain, relaxation. There are so many different strains and they're really helpful. And I have recommended microdose.com to so many people. And you know what they say to me? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Don't be afraid of microdosing. Go to microdose.com and you'll learn all about microdosing THC. These gummies feel amazing. They taste amazing. I have used them to get me into the zone I need to write. I've used them at night after a stressful day or a stressful show to relax. I have also said to family members, please take a gummy right now. And they've said, oh, good idea. So check it out. Check it out because they're fantastic. And I'm not like a big weed person. I mean, I used to be. And I do enjoy, I do enjoy weed every now and then, but I love, I love these gummies and I take them with me everywhere. So check it out. Don't be afraid. They're all natural. They're fantastic. And you deserve it. So what are you going to do? You're going to do something that is fantastic. You're going to get 30% off your first order. 30% off. That's a lot. Plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Use promo code Judy Gold, J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D. It's available nationwide. They deliver it to your door. That is microdose.com, promo code Judy Gold for 30% off and free shipping. Do it. Go to microdose.com, promo code Judy Gold. You deserve it. You deserve it. And you know what else? You're welcome. Well, I don't see the point in waiting any longer. Let's bring her out. The star attraction, the one you came to see. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Ms. Judy Gold. Hey, everyone. I just want to say this is a very special, special episode of Kill Me Now because I'm not saying my guest is ancient, but when I was a kid, this guy, first of all, you know, there's people that are a part of your life that you know from forever. And I just, I love him. And I've known about him since I'm in, I guess, I guess junior high school. And his body of work is so, it's so vast and yet so diverse. That was the word I was looking for. And I am thrilled thrilled. And if you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that last week I just posted something of his because he has interviewed. I can't even tell you. You, you, It's going to be great. He has a new book out called Spike, the Wonder Dog, which is getting rave reviews. It is politically incorrect, which is fucking perfect for this show. Um, yeah. We're going to talk about his life, and you're going to buy his book when you're finished listening to this because it's fucking great. Um, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Bill Boggs is here. Bill Boggs! Uh, it's true I'm here. I, I'm not sure that I deserve all that. Oh, Bill, come on. All right, I'll take it. Thanks. My, my body of work exceeds my body at this point. <laughs> and you're right, I'm not ancient. I'm still in the game, and I'm having a great time. Right. I was just, that was actually a reflection on me, so I, I said know. I'm a little, oh, no. I'm old. But I never like, you know, I never like when people say, oh, you're dating yourself, because that's the life you've lived. I was telling somebody uh, yesterday, I saw Elvis Presley, you know, and they said, oh, you're dating yourself. Screw it. I saw Elvis Presley. What the fuck is that? Like, it's called life experience, asshole. I did something you'll never have the opportunity to do. Yeah, particularly now. You're not going to see him. He's not around. Oh, by the way, did you know Elvis Presley was Jewish? No, that's a new one. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I am my mother's daughter um, and we would sit in front of the TV like she knew every Jew Every half, you, this is the Jew bell. Anytime we mention anything Jewish, a bell goes off. But um, half Jew, married a Jew, converted <laughs> to Jew, everything. So that's how we would watch TV. We'd be in the middle of a like a love scene and be like, ah, oh, Jew. So um, Elvis, uh, his grandmother was Jewish. He has it. He has a star of David on his um, gravestone. Wow, boy, I didn't mm-hmm. know that. That, that's, is that like that Adam Sandler song? That yes, that is how that is how we think. We are like, oh, there's another one. Anyway, so I am of your, you know, you you have written books about uh, or book about how to interview people. You have done seminars about how to interview people. So I feel especially nerve, not nervous, but like I got to get this right. But I do copy. I do a lot of research. And I'm also fascinated by the person. And I think that that's something we have in common, that you've always been like very uh, fascinated by the person, not the product that they're trying to push, Uh, which is why when you hosted um, Midday, which I watched every fucking day, you you were doing long, long interviews before anyone was doing long interviews. So you are you, you know, you broke the mold. So but let's you grew up in Philly. Your father was an electrical appliance dealer, correct? Your mother? Actually, vacuum cleaners. My father was a- No way! The vacuum cleaner man. He was the vacuum cleaner man, ran the business out of our home. Well, my- wait, I need to know what the best vacuum cleaner is, and do you own it? My father always, actually, truthfully, I think Auric is very good these days. Yes. However, if you have a lot of carpeting, yes. you must have what's called a revolving brush yes. cleaner. Because it, as Hoover said, it beats as it sweeps. Right. It My father, you know, I could fix vacuum cleaners. Right, right, right. When I was um, 12 years old, I was selling during the summer. My father set me up and I went door to door selling vacuum cleaner belts and the bags, you know, the, the paper bags. That were oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I made $100 during the summer when I was in like ninth grade. Wow, that's great. You're a salesman, door to door salesman. Yeah. Wow. So, what do you have? What do you have an auric? Yeah, we have we have an auric. Uh, uh. I, I'm saying to Jane all the time, we need an upright. But I have a, a, in East Hampton, where my, my home is in East Hampton. I have one of my father's original cleaners. I have a Hoover with a revolving brush. Wow. Metal, not all plastic, and uh, it really does a great job on the rugs. Uh, do you think of your father every time you vacuum? I, you know, it's interesting. My father died in <laughs> 82. Right. I, yeah. Obviously, I think of my father every time I see a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, I, I bet. I, 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 working <laughs> and it's it, it's interesting how I say to people, I, my mother, I don't say I lost my father. That always sounds like he wandered off. I know. Street. You know, my father died in 82. My mother, my mother died in 2010. But it's amazing how, and I had wonderful parents, I'm blessed, right. how they stay with you. Oh. Your parents are going to be for good. Uh, with you forever. I, I have to confess that the day today, the day we are recording this, is the fifth anniversary of my mother dying. So, oh. and, you know, my father died in 1990. Not a day goes by. Not a day. That's right. Your mother, Helene, was a U.S. Navy purchasing agent. That's right. My mother worked for the Navy. She had a government job. She went to, um, before she met my father, she went to business school so she could type, take shorthand. My mother, the same thing. There you go. And my mother was, you know, a full-blooded German woman. Her parents were immigrants, extremely well-organized. Right. Very calm under pressure. Like Ice Cube would run at her. Right, right, right. Very calm. And so she excelled. She just started out as a typist in the typing pool. And she ended up being a, a G7 rating, a purchasing agent with a nice pension and everything like that because she was an intelligent, talented woman. My mother went to work when I was in about seventh grade and my sister was in sixth grade, maybe slightly sooner. And it was great. The fact and it I, was it was unusual at the time. It was. And, you know, we were um, essentially just, you know, middle class family in northeast Philadelphia. But we did have the two incomes. 
And so I remember when I went to the University of Pennsylvania, I had a partial scholarship to Penn that my, my mother just took out all these bonds that she had saved, you know, to pay, pay for my education. Right. But that the scholarship really helped. I mean, Jesus, schools now. Forget oh, it. Are you I, fucking kidding me? I know. My one son went to IU. Good. Uh, Indiana University. And I can't even believe it. My other son's going to Tulane, but he's playing basketball for them. So, but, Is he tall, very tall, right, Judy? He's 6'8". He's 6'8". A little I, one. Pretty, pretty strong in the legs. Good quarterback. Oh, he, he's great. He's a... He's a um, Small forward, small. Uh, he's an amazing three-point shooter. Amazing. Did you play basketball at all yourself? No, I didn't, Bill, because when I was in seventh grade, I tried out for the basketball team. And the coach told me that I was too tall and it wouldn't be fair to the other players. I was almost six feet at that point, maybe oh five, word. 11. And it wasn't until like a few years ago that another coach at the school said to me, oh, he regrets that. And I was like, fuck him. Anyway, I was a nerd. I was a music nerd. I was in the marching band. I was in the orchestra. It was like, whatever. But now that I have a son who's a division one athlete, I realized I could have fucking, I could have been. Yeah, you, well, you probably would have excelled if your reason right. good. At, what was your, two first, my mother played basketball, believe it or not. Now, my you. grandmother played basketball. That's hilarious. Was she was, tall? She was 5'10", my mother was. Wow. My, yeah, uh, and she, so she actually did play. I never saw her play, obviously. No, I shouldn't say obviously. But that, that was always the family thing. My, my, my father was an excellent athlete. My mother played basketball in high school. Yeah. That's great. My grandmother was born in 1896. She was 5'7", and she played basketball. <laughs> That's hilarious. But uh, I think I would have been pretty decent. But anyway, so... Um, so you went to Lincoln High School, which right. is where you well, you loved the radio as a kid. You were, I, I read that you loved the radio. You loved listening to the radio and always wanted to be an interviewer. But then you go to and you went to high school and you realized, you know, you you learned how to speak in front of people. So the combination of this love of interviewing and the speaking in front of people kind of gelled. Yeah, and little Bill Boggs was walking around the house with a pencil, pretending to be Arthur Godfrey or, 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 or Art Linkletter on the radio, right. interviewing people. And then when I got to Lincoln High School, Northeast Philadelphia, 4,400 students, a wonderful school. And absolutely it shaped my life. I mean, I could talk about Lincoln High School for a long right. time. And while at Lincoln, um, I've, I've always I've had like a political side of me. I'm going to brag. Since third grade, all the way up to the Friars Club, including my fraternity in college, I've been president of every organization no way. I've ever joined. And president from fourth grade all the way up through president of my student council at Lincoln High School. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just like doing Do it. Do you, um, first of all, your sister must have hated your fucking guts that she had, that she had to follow that. Well, that, my sister was mentally ill. My wow. sister, to, to understand me is to understand that when I was about three years old, I knew something was wrong with Wrong with her, yeah. I knew something was wrong. And so it was like a progressive thing. And Judy, for all the gifts that I've been given, and I'm overly rewarded, my sister had none of those. And, right. And, um, she died, she died uh, 15 years ago. And... Uh, had a, had a sad life. I mean, the, at her funeral, I said, let's not remember the, the cold black and white images of her adulthood. Let's remember right. the green pastures of childhood. Because right. we did have fun together as little kids. But oh. the more. So my sister. Do was, you think she would have um, if she had been born, you know, 50 years later, it would have been a different story for her? It's a tough one to say this, but I think with more enlightened medical awareness, yeah. something was wrong with my sister, an intervention potentially, she might have been cured, but basically she has schizophrenia. I mean, right, what, right. Yeah, what can I don't you do? Know, yeah, what can you do about that? You know? Yeah. 
Was your mother really strict? I mean, I always assume German mothers. No, were. no. my father was more strict than my mother. Right. And both of us were, you know, we were pretty good kids, Judy. So strictness, you know, there were rules and we follow the rules and we break right. them. Sometimes my father would yell at me and stuff like that. But again, the blessing was good parents. And I think there's a, there's a song from the 50s, you know, it's only the good times I remember. The older I get. Right. The more it just like in memory yet green, everything like seems like it, it was really nice. So, yeah, we had an organized household. We ate dinner at the same time. And then stuff annoyed me. Right. I, I never felt compared to some of my friends and their parents and how their parents treated them. No. Hey everyone, did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the United States with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? And I'm one of them. You're listening to one of them. Fast Growing Trees has everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, house plants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and your space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever, forever. I just want you to know that I just got off a plane and I walked in my apartment. What was the first thing I did is I came in and said hi to Avi, my fig tree. I'm telling you, and I have Yael, which is another plant, but Fast Growing Trees has changed my atmosphere here in my apartment. You don't need a lot of space, but they do have, you know, they have stuff for outdoor spaces. But I live in an apartment, and I'm telling you, Avi and Yael, yes, they're both Jewish names, Hebrew, the space looks so much better. And I just had a conversation with Avi. Like, I was like, I missed you. I love having living things here. It's very, very, I don't know, it's made this more of a home. It's the best. And Elisa has some too. And she loves them. And she talks to them too. But she got that from me. Anyway, check out Fast Growing Trees. You need to be around plant life. This spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code Judy Gold, J U D Y G O L D, at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code Judy Gold at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code Judy Gold. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. You're welcome. You went to Penn, right? Somehow. And you and you you also got a master's degree at Penn. Yeah. You know, what actually happened was the reason I went to Penn was my father had worked at, at the University of Pennsylvania as a coach. And so. What, co- what did he coach? Swimming. My father was a, a, a swimming coach. Wow. Yeah. And then he, he he got into vacuum cleaners because he needed to make more money once he right. had children. So I went to Penn and uh, they had the Annenberg School of Communications, which is really what I was interested in. I thought it was an undergraduate program. Right. And through my freshman year, I find out, oh, no, it's a graduate school. So I right. went for four years in order to get to the graduate school. But that was fun. One year master program is the happiest year of my education. Really? Yeah. Annenberg School of Communication. Well, you got you got into writing more creative things and television. And so um, I was my, you know, I was I just wanted to get through Penn. Judy. Right, I, right. I was a fair student. I tried to take the easiest courses. I should have been taking courses at Wharton in economics. I was taking. Right. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. Right, right. But then you got like a regular job and fucking hated it. Yes, this is a seminal. This is something when I did some of those talks, I I wanted to get on television. I wanted to get into show business and had no contacts. But I was right. I was making some progress with Channel 3 and Channel 6 and Channel 10 in Philadelphia. And the phone rings and it's this Fortune 500 company, Armstrong. Armstrong at that time, Cork Company. Cork Company, that's right. They make linoleum and, and right, right, right. And so what happened, Judy, was 
Armstrong says, well, we'd like to interview you. So I drive out. Wait, can I, before you start, yeah, go ahead, you, you had the, you had the opportunity to be an NBC page as well, but you chose the, you know, I, that's not true. That's Fuck, actually, I read that. Yeah. No, that's one of those things that somehow right. seemed right. my, my classmate, Barry Jenner, uh, who also went to the show business, was an NBC page, and somehow it got mixed up. I've never. Uh, all right. Any, any related to any relation to uh, Caitlyn Jenner? Uh, no, no. Barry Barry Jenner was a he. He was chasing women all his life. Yeah. Oh, all right. God God rest. Him. Anyway, so I get the, I get this job, mm-hmm. and I rationalize because it involves writing because it involves producing shows and stage shows. It's like show business, and this is good. And the money- At the Cork Company. Well, yeah, it's a big company. Well, they they said Cork. They changed their name to World Products because Armstrong makes ceiling tiles and oleum and stuff. Right, right. So here's what happened, Judy. So after about three weeks, I realized, man, I am not the man in a gray flannel suit. I am not the corporate suite guy. I hate this job. This is really boring. And but I now have a lease on an apartment. I've got car payments, so I'm slogging away doing really boring work. And a friend of mine named Jay Tarsus, whom I knew from Ocean City, New Jersey, was working for Alan Funt. He had a daughter, Jamie Tarsus, yes. and, and another child on the way. He was making a hundred bucks a week, living in Coney Island, commuting to New York City. I said, "Look, it's not, it's not hip down here, but they pay great." So Jay came down and he got in the special promotions department because he's just a really funny guy and a great writer. One of the funniest people I knew. He and Norman Steinberg were a couple years older than I was working in Ocean City. I get this. These two guys, Norman would go on to write My Favorite Year and be executive of the Cosby Show. And Jay ended up in the comedy team with Tom Patrick J. Tarzis, and Jay ended up writing for Bob Newhart and Mary Tyler. And these are my friends. Right. So anyway, there we are at Armstrong, hating our jobs. And Tom and Jay, Tom Patrick and Jay Tarzis, got together and started writing comedy routines. And this is hand to God, but this is a fable, and this is how it happened. One day, I'm walking down the hall, and my love of comedy, I was in a comedy team in high school and college. I wrote comedy skits. Yeah, you're a big, huge comedy fan, yeah. You're doing this comedy routine in the hallway, two guys back and forth, a little bit like Nichols and May. Right. They've got a couple secretaries against the wall laughing, so I lean against the wall and watch. Wow, this is great, I think. So I, what is this? I say, ah, we hate our jobs just like you do. So we're writing comedy routines. We've written 10 so far. I said, do another one. They do this thing about the toll taker on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, the ticket going back and forth. And now here's the legend is true. Print it. In the middle of the routine, I have this blinding revelation. We'll quit our jobs, go into show business, and I will be their agent. Right. And two months later, they were on the Merv Griffin show. No fucking way. Yeah. Yep. And you were managing them, right? Or uh, Yeah, actually, I thought I'd be an agent, but I ended up being a manager. What happened was they started, there were a lot of like coffee houses that we, maybe it was three months later, but we kept the jobs, but they started working around at little places where I got them booking and they worked. And it was evident that their material is really good. So the material gets polished up enough just in front of audiences for me to set up, me to set up somebody with Merv Griffin's t- Tony Garofalo. Merv Griffin's talent coordinator. And we went up and they did six skits for him. They loved him and gave us on the spot two dates for the show. That's unbelievable. And, you know, do you think like, first of all, that doesn't happen these days. But I, you know, I as more the more I read about and interview people and read about the the, the older time, you know, the, the days before, you know, yeah. able and everything, you know. It seemed like because I just interviewed um, Ben and Amy Stiller about Jerry and Ann. And it just seems like, you know, if you were talented and you made a call or, made, you know, it was there were less performers, but there was more opportunity, even even though even though there were less, you know, networks and, and less shows. It seemed like if you were good and you were decent 
at what you do, you could get on a TV show. And because the TVs, you know, were the, you know, everyone watched, that would catapult you into. Well, you know, uh, I'll respond to that because I'm of that era. Just taking two daytime shows, say the Mike Douglas show and the Merv Griffin show. Mike was on the afternoon, as was Merv Griffin. Both of those shows were 90 minutes long. And right. both, both of them booked comedians who would come out and do stand-up. I, on existing shows, I don't think like Alan has a comedian come out no. and stand up. Nor do I think that they're introducing new people on the Alan show or, or any of the daytime shows. So you, you simply had an atmosphere. While that, you're right, there weren't as many, as many outlets uh, there were network outlets that were available for, I mean, you look at the stuff that Carlin was doing and all the, all the people of the 60s. Patrick and Tarsus broke in 1967. So at that time, Joanne Worley, Rodney yep. Dangerfield, right. uh, Joan Rivers, we met all right. those people passing through our lives at the Improv and a couple of comedy clubs. Yeah, and and it's just not, you know, it, it makes me sad when you say that, like that when you mention these daytime shows and how they don't like these people started as comics. You know, you would think that that idea of bringing in new talent would be I mean, but now it's like American Idol or America's Got Talent, which is so much more of a reality program than uh, you know, what's their story? You know, oh, they had a hard life and then we're going to laugh at them, you know, instead of just coming out and doing a skit. I mean, I can't imagine, uh, you know, Ann and Jerry, the way they would do their skit and would Ann would, you know, introduce the skit and then they would do it. And the audience, it was great. But there's I don't know. It's sad. Yeah, yeah it's sad. true. Um, so you you quit your Armstrong job. Yeah. Once they got on the Merv show. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story that's related to this. So we get the dates. We're still working at Armstrong and, and right. they know that we've got this comedy team, but they don't know what we've got up our right. sleeve. So in order to get the Griffin audition, all three of us had to like pretend to be sick, drive to New York, Lancaster, <laughs> PA, do the audition and drive back. And then the right. next day, so there's no suspicion. Now we don't quit yet because we got to make sure we actually get on the Griffin show. So like two, three weeks go by, we're working and they're, they're playing like a little, little local place. I'm working every day at Armstrong. So now they're going to do the Griffin show. Once again, we have to pretend to be sick. We go up and we do live Merv Griffin show. Okay. Now the president of the company's name was Moose J. Warnock. And he had this beautiful blonde wife who was famously a lush drinking like martinis at three. She's he, everyone. He's at work. She, of course, is just a housewife in those days. She's home on her second martini, four thirty in the afternoon. And Merv Griffin says, "I have two. I have a new act here. I'm introducing them to America. Two wonderful young men. They work at the Armstrong Cork Company in Lancaster. <laughs> she like spits up her martini, right, <laughs> and calls." Moose on the phone. So Moose gets a right now. So he turns on the TV, but it's too late. He has to say, right, right. So all of our, my boss, their boss, the next morning, you guys weren't sick yesterday. You're on the Merv Griffin show. Right. And, was it, and that was the day we quit. That was the that day. is so, you know, yeah. what was it? I want, was he, was he like enamored by that or just pissed off? I mean, you would think he'd be like, wow, you are the Merv Griffin uh, show. But was, that's so listen, funny. You have this company of, right. of Fortune 500 companies, straight-laced people, coat and tie to work. No, I know. No, no female employees except secretaries, right? So we, the fact that these guys were on the Merv Griffin show was like, you know, it was like Mount Rushmore for these right. people. So when we quit, we had this other guy who was working with us named Hugh Wilson, who was also funny. And he sees that we got out. Hugh Wilson quit six months later, and he went on to create WKRP. Oh, my God. And, and, and a couple of the police story movies, right? And that that was all one year. And our, they're still trying to figure out what, what we oh were Oh, my doing. God. There must have been something in the water. Uh, after you did that, uh, you started 
working? Did you go to North Carolina before you went to Philly? No, no. What happened was I, I worked hard managing the comedy team for three years while mm -hmm. uh, earning extra money as a substitute teacher. And then I got a job on the crew uh, Channel 10 in Philadelphia. So because managing the team was like a 40 hour a week job. Right, right, right. Now, one thing led to another. And I uh, got, an got a job at the Betty Hughes show. Is that what happened? I was talent coordinator on the Betty Hughes show, Betty Hughes and Friends. That was a woman who became famous because she actually lost 100 pounds. She was the wife of the governor of New Jersey. She had a great personality. Right. And she was on television, Betty Hughes and Friends. And what happened was I was set to move to California with Patchett and Tarsus. This story is worth telling. I had been managing them for three years. And at Thanksgiving, my mother took me aside and in a very motherly way said to me, are you happy doing what you're doing? And I was happy doing what I was doing. I was good at it. I liked comedy and everything like that. However, I would notice that people would like walk right around me, not even say hello. Right. To meet the comedy. Get them. Yeah. So, but my mother says, so you're happy doing what you're doing, pushing for the boys. Yeah. She said, but this is, these are exact words almost. She says, but I thought you always wanted to have your own show. Yeah. She said, so look, ask yourself this, what you're doing right now, is it really your deepest aspiration? And I said, no. And she just said, don't forget that, Bill. Oh, I love her. I know, but mud. So, the, so what, happened, what happened, Judy, is this. She planted that thought in my mind. And about, but I was set to move to California with Tom and Jay, right? I had three years invested in them and I knew they would do well. I mean, after all, they went on to write for Mary Tyler Moore. Right, right. Start right there and Bob Newhart and other stuff. Anyway, they were starting a new show on the station across town, KYW. And Debbie Miller, who had worked on the Douglas show, was looking to put together a staff. And she was aware that I was this hotshot talent coordinator on Betty Hughes and Friends. She knew me from Patrick and Tarsus being on the Mike Douglas show. So she calls me and takes me to lunch and offers me the job of her associate producer on the new morning show and says, I, you know, I've been trained by Woody Fraser and Roger Ailes and producing, they were the producers of the Douglas show, also done at KYW. And I'll mentor you. I think you have what it takes to be a great TV producer. I said, Debbie, I'm flattered, but I'm set to move to the West Coast with Patrick and Taurus. I said, right. I, I decline your offer. And she says, no, I think you're making a mistake. No. Then she said the words that changed my life. She said, okay, I understand all that. That makes a lot of sense. But let me just ask you this before we leave. What would it take for you to stay? Okay. I, with my mother's words ringing in my ear, I said, wow. you say the show is going to have a host and five regular contributors, one's on right. every day. You let me be one of those contributors on TV every day without auditioning. I know right. I can do it. I don't right. want somebody saying, how can Bill Boggs be on TV? He's just a manager. How right, right, right. I'll leave. I'll get a new manager for Tom and Jay. They ended up right. going to Bernie Brillstein, by the way. Oh, my God. I know. And I'll come. That's how I got on television. That, that is, you know what? God bless your mother. Yep. Thanks. And oh. Debbie Miller. And Debbie Miller. What and would Debbie it, Miller. What would it take for you to stay? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So you end up on this show. Do you go to North Carolina? You, I, you uh, for Southern Exposure with Bill. Is that what led led you to the? Next Here's what happened. So for for two years, I worked on a show called McLean and Company. Okay, right. I was a associate producer. I was on once a week as Mr. Weekend. And you know, back in those days, you that's know, right, Mr. Weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guests who came through. I'm when did we nine o'clock? Robert. They were. 
There was no massive amount of national promotion. One day we had Robert Mitchum on the show promoting a movie. All manner of people. Right. But after two years, I realized I've learned a lot about producing and I'm only on TV once a week. I made a New Year's resolution. I'll go anywhere in the country where I can have my own show five days a week. Right. I made that resolution and I found and I just sent it out to everybody telling not emailing, just telling everybody. And sure enough, somebody heard about an opening in North Carolina. I auditioned. I got the part and I did Southern Exposure with Bill. Now, Bach. When you when when you went to audition for that kind of job, like yeah. we all know what it's like to audition to be okay. an actor. Like, what do they make you do? Well, how, how does it go? Yeah, I remember it distinctly. The um, I had to interview someone about heroin addiction, and uh, the whole thing was just going to be my talking about heroin addiction. And I don't remember much about sitting in a chair interviewing the person, except that I was keyed up but not nervous. I've been right. public speaking all my life, but I do remember that. I had a copy of Time magazine with a big feature story on heroin in it. And I read that twice going down to High Point. And I did the audition and uh, Phil Lombardo liked me. I know when we talk about the book, by the way, yeah. I'm not moving to that. But Southern Exposure, the host in the book is there. And his boss, Lombardo, is the same boss. They're based on based on that aspect. I'm not trying to move forward, but that was a really seminal period of my life. Right. In High Point, North Carolina. That's amazing. Uh, then then you get uh, Midday. Well, first yeah. of it was, it was called something else, then it was Midday oh, yeah. with Bill Boggs. It was called yeah, Midday, Midday Live. Live. And no midday live with Bill Boggs than just mid midday with Bill Boggs. 1975 yeah. to right. 1987. You have to tell the story of how you got that job. It's fascinating. The the Judy Lick, the Judy Lick Judy story. Judy Lick. Yes. Well, I remember her. Is she alive? Yeah, she's alive and lovely. She's, uh, I, I remember her. She's married to um, uh, Jerry Della Femina. Uh-huh. And, uh, she lived, they live in East Hampton. I, I, every once in a while I see her. So here's the deal. Okay. Uh, in, I had um, been with my show, Southern Exposure, which I was in total charge of producing myself. I had complete control. Right. And I'm happy to say with the right promotion, starting off, we beat the Today Show. We beat the Today Show for three years. Uh, wow. Big rating. So what happened, Judy, was I had been in New York as a guest host uh, on the Channel 7 local morning show because they'd used guest hosts. So when I would have a week off from, from midday, I went up and did that twice. Right. So as as is has been the case in a few occasions, Frank Sinatra features in the story. Yeah. So I was headed, it was going to New York to um, take my mother and her best friend to see Frank Sinatra at the Spectrum. And um, in the plane, on the seat of the plane was a copy of the Daily News saying something about the show I was unaware of midday, that the host, Lee Leonard, had left and they were having guest hosts. But I, I made little of it. Right. Now, right. walking with my mother, I met my mother downtown at the Eagle. Walking across the street, I ran into Judy Licht, who recognized me from being on Channel 7 and stopped me. Right. And she said, you know, they really like you were on Channel 7 and we're looking for a host for the show. I think, oh, my God, this is like an omen. Right. And she says, you should get in touch with them. So I I end up in truth. I was supposed to go to France in, like the next week. Right. But my mother said, don't go to France. Make the call. So I made the call and I got went up and auditioned like within a week or two. And I got the job. So um if I hadn't run into Judy Lick walking yeah. across the street, I probably would have ended up in San Francisco because there was a San Francisco affiliate that was interested in me. And that might have been a lot of fun, too. You know? Yeah, your mother should have been an agent. What, boy, was she smart. You're, <laughs> a, lot of, um, a lot of faith in me. You're, we, I just want to spend some time talking about Midday because sure, sure. 
Anyone who's listening who does not know Midday, go to Bill, go to Bill's YouTube, go to Bill's website. It is, it, first of all, it was the first sort of talk show of its of its kind. And in that, you did these longer interviews. You, you interview, I, and when I say he interviewed everyone, we're talking from Frank Sinatra to John Belushi to uh, Gore Vidal to... Uh, uh, Norm Crosby, uh, to the cops from the son of Sam. I mean, like just an amazing array. And the thing was about your interviewing style. And if you go back and look, like I just, like I just said, I just posted this, this portion of an interview you did with uh, Richard Pryor because it's so prescient. It's so relaxed. Even your body language is so, it, you're so not in the face. You're so or it's so organic that there's no like cue cards in your face. There's no um, cards period that you're holding. You know, it was, it's so, I feel like you were so ahead of your time. Cause I, I think about like the way I try to interview like that. I think about Howard Stern. I mean, he's become this, he's you know, a very good interviewer, amazing interviewer, but it's really, you were, the first, really, to, to I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. But it, what happened was in North Carolina, the Phil Lombardo, who was a young man, a couple of years older than I, who was the general manager, really believed in me, and he really he would give me a case of this direction or that direction. But he, he he let me have full run of what I was doing, and we and we beat the Today Show, and so it was in North Carolina with no pressure on me to perform, do this, we need more energy. We need right, more, right, right. No, there's none of that that I think I developed. You know, I never really thought of it until you just said that. This is a truth, a, a naturalistic style. Right. I found that over time, what people said to me more than anything else, no one said, oh, you're a brilliant interviewer. People would say, I felt really comfortable. In right. Yeah, and, and that apparently led to expediting uh, conversations that that were relaxed and right. in a long form manner. I mean, for right. example, I feel like the guests trusted you. Gain you sort of disarmed them. I, you know, like when I look at some of the interviews, even if they come on like up oh, another interview, it, you see you kind of see them relax after about a minute or two. Like, oh, oh, this is not. Well, you know, I'll tell you one thing that I that I found, that because the quid pro quo on all these shows, for the most part, unless it was a news story, right. was most guests were they had a book, they had this to promote, right. a product, a movie, or it was a news thing. Right. And I found that if the with the big name guests like you know Yul Brenner promoting right. the the King and I, right. Jerry Lewis promoting his latest movie, Natalie Wood talking about a movie that. Right away, I would plug the movie. And I would wait, get it out of the way. Now they they check off that box. Right, now right. we can talk about your life, and we'll come right. back and talk more about the movie. Otherwise, the guests. I'm not doing it now because you said we're going to get to the book. Otherwise, the guest is sitting there. Oh, what about my? Or they interrupt. Right, right, right. For example, the way that this would. Oh, you know. And by the way, in my book, that it would be like right, that. right, right. Yeah. Well, all my interviews have a part one and a part two, and the no, part one is really yeah. Okay, so but what I would encourage people that the YouTube channel is called Bill Boggs TV. This is a YouTube thing. This is not a profitable thing or anything like that. It's so good. Yeah, just go so and subscribe. Good. Subscribe to Bill Boggs TV, and then when we put up things, they they end up there. In and they're amazing. Like the all right. Yeah. All right, I'm going to name some people, and you have to tell the story about their interview, okay? Oh, well, this is tricky. All right, go ahead. Well, first of all, let's start with Frank. Frank Sinatra, that was the longest interview he had, he, what it was he ever done, that he had ever done and has had ever done. Like, that's it. You had the longest interview with Frank Sinatra ever in the history of the world. And, and it was also the first time he was ever on a talk show. right. Uh, well, uh, I'm going to, you know, I've told the story a lot about how I met Frank, but I don't tell what 
the, the prelude to it. So I'm going to give you the prelude to it. And you have to believe I have no reason to make this up. Right. So I, I love Frank Sinatra. As a, my mother was a Bobby Soxer. And back in the early 60s, in the 500 Club in Atlantic City, I snuck in to see Sinatra dressed as a busboy. And I just fell in love with him. I thought he was great. And, and nobody believed us. And we actually went back the next night, snuck in, took pictures, and ended up in the Atlantic City press that two guys who were working in, in Ocean City got in to see Frank Sinatra through the kitchen. And it was really a funny thing. Anyway, from that point forward, I started buying Frank albums. And I started to have a really pleasant recurring dream. It wasn't every night, maybe a couple times a year, but it was a, and, and in the dream, I was sitting in a chair, just like I'm talking to you now, and we're, I'm having a conversation, and it's Frank Sinatra. Now, sometimes it didn't look like Frank, but it was always Frank. You know, right, 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 right. Now, let's fast forward. It's Easter weekend, 1975, and Bill Boggs has somehow arranged with his friends to go to Las Vegas and on Saturday night see Elvis Presley first show and Frank Sinatra second show. Okay, and that's going to be I'm leaving on Friday. We, I'll get there Friday night. We'll party Friday night. We'll go to Elvis and Frank Saturday night, and I'll fly back on Monday. I'll rest on Sunday. Take Monday off from midday. Now, Thursday night uh, in my apartment in uh, 63rd and Madison, asleep, and I woke up about 6:30 in the morning, having had the most vivid dream of sitting in a chair talking to Frank Sinatra. And again, this was something that happened a couple of times, but it was really a vivid dream. And I sat on the side of the bed and I thought, this is a prediction dream. This dream is forecasting the future. I'm going to meet Frank Sinatra this weekend in Las Vegas, and he's going to come and do midday. And it happened. I can't, like, why doesn't that what the fuck? You met me. <laughs> and you went, you you met him, and uh, someone introduced you to him, right? I, I'll and, tell you what happened. So, but, then, but the dream story, yeah. so the, the dream story, I rarely tell it, because you got to really be on board right. and not think that this guy is feeding you a load of BS. Right, 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 right. no reason to make this up. So what happened was, after, and you got to recognize I've never shied away from partying. I like to have fun. So we have been partying all day, including seeing Elvis and seeing Sinatra. So everybody is back in their room, like passed out, but not me. I'm wandering around, not thinking, oh, well, I'm waiting to meet Frank. Nothing. This is like the second time I had ever been in Caesar's Palace. It's 3.15 in the morning. I'm just looking. I ran into Jilly Rizzo, whom, if you know Frank, was his right-hand man, a good guy. And because of, and if you want to hear this story, I'll tell it. Because of something I did with Sammy Davis Jr. several years before, Julie was aware of me through Ken Roberts and knew that I was this new guy in New York at a TV show. And so Julie stops me and says, Bill, Bill Bogsby, oh, Julie Rizzo, blah, would you like to meet Frank? Well, obviously, you know. <laughs> I am numbed with drugs and alcohol now. So, right, I'm numbed by this. So he says, well, come back at four o'clock in the morning, the gallery, and I'll introduce you. So I had a half an hour to really focus myself that I'm going to meet Frank. But I wasn't even thinking of the dream, right? And so four o'clock, I go over, and there's Sinatra in his tux and a couple of beautiful women, and a couple of slick-looking guys. And Julie says, wait a minute, because Frank's in a conversation. And he waits, and he gets Frank's ear and tells Frank who I am. And Frank looks up and says, Hey, Billy, how you doing? And we talked for about 10 minutes. Just, he, you know, Frank was one of those guys like Bill Clinton. Just yeah. Oh, yes. We will focus. And he, focus. They, you think you're the center of the universe. Yeah. Some, and that's a, that is a learned talent of communication. That's like right. a, not a natural gift. You have to focus. Right. So at the end of like the 10 minutes, and I did reveal to him that I had snuck in to see him at 500 Club. And Frank says, you're the guy? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> end of the 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, at the, at the end of the 10 minutes, Frank says to me, I'm going to be in 
New York. I don't want to. I don't want to promise you anything. Remember, this is April. I don't want to promise you anything, Bill. But I'm going to be in New York with Ella and Basie in September, and maybe I'll swing by and do your show. And my reaction was reflective. I said, right. Frank. I literally put up my hands. I said, I'm not asking for anything. Right. And Frank takes my hands down cups his hand over mine, pulls me in real close and looks at me with these cobalt eyes and says, Billy, I know you're not asking. Maybe I'll come. Boom. That's it, baby. He came. That's how there, it happened. What was it? A th- was he on for th- how long did you interview him for? Well, the, he didn't do the live show. We taped right. it. We taped it. Right. Like, he was on for almost an hour. That's it's amazing. No, yeah. No commercial breaks like this. My, my directions to the, director were when Frank, I want the tape rolling from the minute he walks into the studio to the minute he walks out of the studio. I do not want an audience. I just want to sit and talk to Frank. And uh, we had a couple employees were sitting around. It was a great day. It was That is amazing. It was Um, a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to part one of Kill Me Now with Bill Boggs. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and please leave a review. It helps more people find this amazing podcast. Five stars only, please. I'm very competitive and I only want five stars. If you have any criticisms, keep them to yourself. Also, if you haven't had the chance to pre-order my new book, which is fucking great. Yes, I can say that when they come for the comedians, we're all in trouble. It is available for pre-order now and it will be released on July 28th and... I just uh, recorded the audiobook, so that will also be released on July 28th. Publishers Weekly, thank you very much, uh, says, Gold's defense of comedy filled with great jokes and stories of censored comics is a reminder that freedom of speech is no laughing matter. So get the fucking book. So that's it. There you go. It would mean so much to me if you would check it out. All pre-order links are on the homepage of judygold.com or wherever books are sold. As you know, It is Pride Month, so make sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram for all upcoming virtual Pride events and all dates at Judy Gold. That's J-E-W-G-O-L-D, like Jew Gold, get it? And I will say it once again, Black Lives Matter. So listen, everyone, have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. And as we always say, so long! Don't forget to tune in next week to Just Kill Me Now. Um, or, let's just kill me. Oh. Don't forget to turn uh, for part two on Just Kill Me. No, it's not. It's <laughs> just, just Kill Me. Now. No, Judy no. Gold's no, Just Kill Me. Just Kill Me Now. Just, just kill me now. <laughs> Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.